Philippians chapter number one. Let us read the first eight verses together. We're really going to roll up our sleeves on verses six, seven, and eight this morning. But I want us to uh, read these first eight verses in this introduction to the church at Philippi that that Paul writes here. So Philippians 1, uh, I'll just pick it up in verse number 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. So Paul and Timothy, especially Paul here, writing to the church at Philippi, a local church that was right there. He calls them saints. Not because they have, you know, this, this great moral fortitude, but just because this is their standing with God, not based on what they've done, but based on what Jesus has done. He can call them saints. And he says there's kind of structure in the church. There's bishops and deacons that are, that are leaders and servants inside of the church. And I'm writing to you. So verse 2, grace and peace unto you. And from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And do pay attention to verse 3 because 3 through 7 is one big, flowing th- one big flowing thought. You pick up three, and you, get, you have to go all the way to seven before you get a period. So it's one big flowing thought. We covered half of it last week. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So thus far we covered Paul said, I think about you, and I am thankful to God for you. And I pray for you, and when I pray for you, I make my request with joy. Like, I'm just bubbling over inside because of you. And the reason that I thank God for you and the reason that I I have joy for you is because there's fellowship in the gospel. You've partnered with me in gospel ministry, and that makes me so grateful. We're together for the gospel. But he continues this thought in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet or as it's fitting or proper for me to thank this of you all because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record how greatly I long after you all in the bowels or in the affections of Jesus Christ. There's a lot we're going to say about these three verses this morning, but if I could just kind of put it in a big nutshell, I would say that Paul is really expressing to this church his continued confidence in them and even his continued confidence in the Lord. And I want us this morning to examine 6, 7, and 8 and see what exactly Paul is saying with this thought of continued confidence. So Philippians 1, we're going to look at 6, 7, and 8 here this morning. And I really think that we can boil this down to kind of three main thoughts and Paul's thought on continued confidence. And that's primarily there is a sure future, there's settled fellowship and there's strong feelings. And I want us to start in verse number six with a, fu- with a sure future. I'll warn you up front that we'll spend the majority of our time on verse number six. And if you don't think that the sermon's going to be three hours long this morning, we'll get to seven and eight and, and cover that eventually. But I want us to start with verse number six and what I would call a sure future. And this is Paul writing to Philippi and expressing to them this thought based on what he just said, that he thinks about them, and he's thankful for them, and he makes prayer with joy for them, and they partnered with the gospel uh, with him in verse number six, uh, being confident of this very thing. So Paul says, look, I'm confident of something. Here, here's something that I am very confident of, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of places in Scripture that compel us to believe that our relationship with Christ There's certainty about our future, and that certainty about our future is not based on what we do or what we've earned or what we've accomplished or what we've done, but it's based on what Jesus has done for us. 
It's based on the faithfulness of God. It's based on the grace of God. You could call this eternal security. You could call this perseverance of the saints. You could call this once saved, always saved. You could put a lot of terminology on it. It really doesn't matter what you call it. What matters more is that you believe it. And Paul is saying, I'm certain based on your life that I see, based on your fellowship in the gospel with me, that causes me to be certain of something, that God has begun a good work in you And God who began a good work in you isn't going to do it halfway. He's going to perform that work, and he's going to complete that work all the way until the day of Jesus Christ. That is the day when Jesus comes back. He puts his feet back on this earth as the angels predicted that he would in Acts 1.11. And Paul says, I am confident that God has begun something in you. I see it. I see the evidence of that manifest in your life. And that causes me also to, to know Jesus and to know that because he began something in you, he is going to continue to work that. He's going to continue to do something inside of you. That it's not with our relationship with the Lord Jesus, it's not, well, I'm saved, now I'm not saved, I'm, I'm in, now I'm not in, I know the Lord, now I don't know the Lord, I'm, I, things are going well, but now they are, I, I have good standing with God right now because I've been a good little boy or a good little girl, but today I've been bad and I don't know if I have good standing, I think maybe there's a problem or maybe something's going on that, that is going to take me away from this, that's, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is, Paul is saying that if God has begun something in you, then God is going to, he's going to work that, he's going to continue that, he's going to perform that. And you see this all through scripture. 1 John 5 tells us that we can know that we have eternal life. John 10 is one of the classic passages on on knowing and and having a, a settled, sure future. And John writes and says this, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, this is Jesus speaking, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me, he's greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And John says, look, you can know that you are secure, that you have relationship, that that if Jesus has begun something in you and you're saved, then he is going to continue to work inside of you. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that we wait for Jesus to come and we know that Jesus will confirm us until the end and he will present us blameless. And the Bible is peppered with with these passages that tell us to look forward to with confident expectation and hope and joy what the future holds. The the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, there's this petition in there, thy kingdom come, three words. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. What does thy kingdom come mean? It means, Lord, bring on the kingdom. Lord, I want this. Lord, I look forward to the day where your will is done in earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I'm desiring this. I'm longing for this. We're, We're told that we have a blessed hope, that we look forward to our future with Jesus. How would it be possible to look forward to a future with Jesus if there isn't a sure future? If that eventual, if that future is going to be a flip of the coin or is going to be, well, I hope that I did enough. I hope that my good outweighs my bad. I hope that one day I'll earn enough credit in standing with God and that, you know, he'll, he'll just kind of dismiss some of this and I'll be okay. If that's is that all that I have and all that you have, all that we have, then there's no way you can look to, forward to the future with, with a confident expectation and a hope and a joy because it's, it's going to be a roll of the dice, it's going to be, well, I think, I hope, I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards that this will go well for me, but I don't know. There's always going to be doubt. There's always going to be pessimism. There's always going to be fear that creeps up inside of us. And we're told over and over again in the Bible that we can look forward to that, that we can, that we can with joy and with exuberance say, Lord, I'm looking forward to what the future holds because we can be certain of it, not because of what we do. 
Not because of who we are, but because of what Jesus Christ has done and is doing inside of us. And Paul was convinced that he could see something in the Philippians' lives. Paul couldn't see their heart. Only God could see their heart. But Paul was convinced that he could see something in their lives, that something was begun, and this was manifesting itself, and it was working itself out. And this caused him to have confidence to say, you know what? The Lord has begun something in you, and if he's begun something, I know that he's going to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And and that's a very healthy tension inside the Bible, that we can't know people's hearts, and, and we can't know what their relationship with God is like. But if someone really has a relationship with the Lord, that does manifest itself on the outside. If there's a root of salvation, fruit begins to spring up. The Bible says that over and over and over again. It's not wrong to think that way. 1 John 2 says this, They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. What's John saying in that verse? John's saying, your relationship with Jesus is not some flash-in-the-pan religious experience. It's not something that, that happens and then dissipates and goes away. It is something that, that continues, that begins to work itself out. I love, and you all know, I love quoting Adrian Rogers. He passed away some years ago, but I love quoting Adrian Rogers because he's extremely quotable. He always has this way of taking Bible truths and putting them in this succinct, terse, easy-to-remember, palatable way. And, and Adrian says this. He says, the faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. That's his way of saying what the Bible says. That if you truly know the Lord, are there going to be ups and downs? Are there going to be times where you're disappointed in yourself or that you, you sinned? Or that, yes, that's going to happen. But at the same time, there's going to be the Lord working in you and continually working in you and continuing to, to do something with you. James says this. He says that, that if faith doesn't have works, if faith is alone, it's dead. That there, there should be a working out of our salvation that should come out of us. And Paul was able to see the fruit of, of the Lord working in these people, and that caused him to be confident of a root and saying, you know what, the Lord is going to continue to work in your life. He says, I think about you, and I think about the fellowship in the gospel and your partnership with me, what you've done with me, how you, how you just stood by my side, and that leads me to a confidence that this is real in your life. That the Lord began something in you past. The Lord is, is going to work this all the way into the future. And he's presently doing something inside of you. He will be working in you. And this, this truth should come as a, as a relief to our hearts. This should be something that causes us to take a deep breath and to, and to take a sigh and to know that, you know what, God inaugurated something in my life with salvation and he's going to work this through to the end. He finishes what he starts. He's faithful. He's good. And he is going to complete this. Our, our own wills, our human wills, blow hot and cold. We, we are prone to these fits of I'm going to do everything and I have just this resolute mindset that I'm going to do all of this this week for Jesus and then, at the, and then a moment later we're, we're prone to being so utterly shaky and unstable. We, we have in our own lives and, and, and you know this to be true in your own life that at times you are, you're, you're frustrated with yourself. You're frustrated that you're not making the progress that, that you feel you should be making in your Christian life and that you're not farther along. I thought it would have been further than I, than I am right now and, and at times we feel 
incomplete. At times we feel distressed by, by our shortcomings. We feel unfinished. We feel discouraged at times. But more than how, how you feel, you should know that if the Lord began something in you and you have a relationship with him, if you're truly saved, then the Lord will he'll continue to work that. But there, there's a future day where you will be rid from the presence of sin entirely and that God holds on to us and we'll see that through to the end. And sometimes those words of hope are just what we need. We as humans are prone to need and to want to know that, you know what, one day it's going to be okay. I can remember just, just humanly speaking, my wife and I, a number of years ago, probably five, six years ago, we were ministering in California at the time, and we had a season of life that hit us that was just this perfect storm almost, that a lot of external circumstances began to weigh on us and pressurize us, and we were just going through a season in our lives that was just not fun at all. And we had, uh, we, we had a, a week of camp, and uh, Mike Clark, who was here just a few weeks ago, his family came. I didn't know Mike at all, but Mike came to that camp, and he was one of the guest speakers. And somehow or another, my wife and I got with Mike and said, hey, could we have an hour of your time? We just want to sit down and just kind of get some, some outside counsel. We really don't know you, but we'd like to just get your perspective on some stuff happening in our life. And we sat down with Mike in a room, probably not quite half the size, but almost half the size. There was no chair. We pulled up three chairs in the middle of this room. No one was in there, just this big empty room, us three in the middle in this little triangle. And we began to tell Mike what was happening in our lives and, and all that, that was transpiring. And we just felt like our life was, was hijacked, for lack of a better word. And Mike told us a lot of things that day and, and tried to weigh in and give us some, some input. But the number one thing that Mike said to us that, that we remembered and that we took away that meant the world to us was he said, there is going to be a day where this is a memory. You're going to get through this. There's going to be a time where you look back and remember this, and it's not your present reality. You know that. And we left that conversation with Mike, and our circumstances had not changed one iota. But we left with hope, and we left with our confidence that something was going to happen, that this was, it wasn't always going to be this tough or rough or, or this disastrous, that the life was going to, to get better, that the circumstances were going to change. And that meant, <clears throat> that meant the world to us. And there should be, at least from this verse, some confidence that you can take away from and say, you know what, I don't know how you feel about your Christian life right now. Maybe last week was the best week you've ever had, and you're on cloud nine. Maybe you feel so discouraged and in the dumps and like, what in the world is, is happening right now? But wherever you're at, you can know if God began a work in you, he will complete it. He'll perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He'll continue to work that, and you can have confidence not in you, but in him. But there is a flip side to this coin that I think is really, really valid for us to learn. And there's an equally important truth. And that is, if we can have confidence in God, that God is working in us and God is going to continue to work in us till the end, then that, that pushes us to a conviction that we're presently works in progress. So if that's true, that God's going to continue to work and he'll work until the end, that means that, yes, I can have confidence in God, but it should also mean that I lower my expectations of those around me because their work's in progress and I'm a work in progress and God's still working in them and God's still working in me. And a, a future completion inevitably means that there's a current non-completion. You following that? What this means is that if I'm a work in progress, then I'm a piece of work. This means that I inevitably have issues. 
And the Lord's still working, and the Lord's still shaping and molding and chipping away at the rough edges and, and trying to chisel and, and, and work inside of me and inside of you. And so this, if you understand this, you begin to understand so much about the church. You begin to understand that if this is the case and we can have a sure future, that means that presently I can be certain of something, and that's that I'm surrounded by a lot of people who aren't perfect. And that, that helps you to understand why the church just as a whole, as an institution at times, is such a mess. And there's really no reason to hide that fact. And we, we couldn't hide it if we wanted to. The newspapers tell the story all too often. And I don't care what denomination you look at. Look at any of them. You'll find issues. You'll find people and, and leaders who, who do things that, that scare us, that are, that are crazy. And we think, how, how could they do that? Or how could they do this? And, and beyond just, just the big stories, even amongst ourselves and in our own lives and in our own families and in, and in those that we surround ourselves with on, on a weekly basis, we find that there's, there's problems, which makes sense. Because the prerequisite for becoming part of the church is an admission of need. It's an admission of, I'm a mess. The church is not like a, I'm good, you're good, so let's all band together and just be this community center for good people. Like literally the, the, the bar for entrance is that you have to attest to the fact that you have a need and that your heart is a mess and that you can't fix yourself or save yourself. And Jesus, I need you to save me. You had to die for me. I'm so bad. And that I need you. And if you get that, then you're going to, you're going to go a long way in understanding what the church really is. It's a hospital for sinners. And it may be more than that, but it's not less than that. And the Christian life in many ways is a very long convalescence where you need continual medication and, con and your heart's in need of gospel repair every single day. And you, and you are constantly in need of the Lord working. And the great physician will complete that in the end. But presently, you and I are a work in progress. And, and honestly, this is why a lot of people write off the church. People look and say, you know what? I, I really felt like the, the bar for entrance should have been higher. I really thought those people would have been better. I really thought I expected more of those that I was going to surround myself with. And I found out that they're flawed and they continue to have flaws. And, and people distance themselves from the church for that reason. But, but there's, that, that is the church. And there's, there's a very healthy tension biblically between, okay, Philippians 1.1, we're saints. We have right standing with God, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. We're saints, but at the same time, we're works in progress. God, God loves us, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, but at the same time, I'm predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, and that means that he's going to continue to work on me. What this means is that Christ loves us as we are, but he doesn't intend for us to stay the way we are. And, and that's, that's the Bible truth. And the church is supposed to bear that out, that there's, that there's unconditional love and acceptance and there's grace and there's forgiveness that manifests itself, but at the same time, that's coupled with a goal of growth. That, that's coupled with us wanting to get better. And if you get the truth that we're all works in progress and you come to an understanding of that's what the church is, then this will help you with your expectations of those that sit around you this morning. If you're not careful, you can find yourself in a I can't believe that they said that. I can't believe that they did that. I can't believe that they acted that way, that they, they were doing that. They're Christians. They're not supposed to be doing that. I can't believe it. Believe it. And believe that you do some stupid stuff too sometimes. 
Believe that you are a work in progress. And the Lord, I'm not excusing that away and saying that we shouldn't want that to change and we should, we should want the Lord to continue to work. Definitely, but you should understand that you're, you're surrounded by people who are on their own journey and you're on your journey. And at times, that's going to be messy. At times, that, that growth process is going to be less than clean and, and you may be offended by somebody. You may have someone that does something that you don't approve of or they offend your sensibilities. But that's, that's the beauty of church. I, as, a, as an elementary age kid, we had a spirit week once a year. And during spirit week, we would have career day every year. And I, am, I was admittedly a huge nerd in elementary. I, my brothers were playing Nintendo and I was reading books. I, you know, collected rocks and butterflies, and like that was my that was my elementary life. And if any of you were nerds too, great, we were nerds together. It was fantastic. But I collected rocks as as a kid. Why? I don't know. I just wanted to collect rocks. And I can remember going to third grade career day, and third grade was a while ago, Francie. It wasn't like t- you know five years ago. It was a while ago. But I can remember going to third grade career day as a geologist. Like my friends were cowboys and athletes and like, you know, policemen, firefighters and astronauts. And I went to work as a geologist. Like I wanted to be a rock scientist. Like I had this little like contraption I made with this box and I would show my rocks off. And I thought I was the stuff because I went to career day as a geologist. Meanwhile, my teachers and friends are like, what is happening here? And that was, that was me. But I can remember in my rock collecting days that there is there's such a thing as a, a rock cleaner, for lack of a better word. It's this drum that you take dirty, dingy, nasty, rough rocks and you throw them on the drum and you add some lubrication to it. You can add water or you can get some better lubrication, but you fill it with lubrication and you put that drum on a lathe that's motorized and it spins that drum and those rocks begin to bounce against each other and you can leave it on for an hour, two hours, a day, two days. The longer you leave it, the cleaner the rocks will become. And as you put those rocks in that drum and they begin to bounce around and rub and grind on each other, it has this process of, of taking away the rough edges and smoothing them. Now rocks that were dirty and nasty, you take them out and they have, they have a luster and they have a shine to them and they look presentable because there was this bump and grind happening inside of this contained unit. And that really is an accurate picture for the church. That you take a bunch of, of sinners, a bunch of dirty people, and you throw them all in a big pot together, and you add the grace and the forgiveness and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you begin to do life together, and your relationships begin to, to, to hit each other, and friction happens, and you begin to rub and kind of grind on each other at times, and it's not comfortable, and it's not always fun, but through that process you begin to see not just the flaws in other people and point to them, but you begin to see the flaws in, you, in your own self. And you begin to see they, they didn't keep their word. They, I can't believe that they wouldn't keep their word. And all of a sudden, you, you know what? There's a little bit of pride and arrogance and, and, and self-thought that's creeping into my own heart. That person offends your sensibilities, and all of a sudden you realize, I'm struggling with bitterness and unforgiveness. There's something in my own heart that, yeah, they did something wrong, but there's something inside of me that needs to change. That person is, is unlovable, but I'm supposed to love them with the love of Jesus, and, and it's showing me that I'm not loving the way that I'm supposed to. All of a sudden, that, that, that person, people, whatever, and let's be real. 
We're family. Families annoy each other. I have a family. I love my family to death. My wife, my children, I, I love them to the moon and back. But my kids annoy me sometimes. That's, I'm not wrong for saying that. I have four brothers. I love my brothers. But they annoy me sometimes and get on my nerves sometimes, right? We're a family, and at times this happens. We annoy each other, and that unloving person is meant to teach you and grow you and, and take the rough edges off of you and help you to learn what the love of Jesus really is. And even Jesus, Jesus said, you know, you love them which love you. whoop de doo He didn't say whoop de doo but he said along those lines. <laughs> you love them which love you. What reward have you? The scribes do that. Big deal. And in the, the shaping of understanding that they're a mess, and they're a mess, and they're a mess, and they're a mess, and I'm a mess, and we're all a mess, and we're together, but we're together, and we're unified, and we're trying to live as Jesus would live. That, ha that has this process of helping and shaping and doing something beautiful inside of, inside of the church. And even beyond that, there are times inside of the church where, where you go to somebody, and you try, to, you try to help them. You try to point out something that in love and grace and tact, point out something that maybe they, they should grow in. And that's, that's appropriate and tact. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian during the World War II area, one of the few Christians who stood for truth and right and against Nazi Germany during World War II, one of the few men that did, he said that there is, there is nothing more cruel than the tenderness that consigns someone else to their sin. And what Bonhoeffer is saying is that there's nothing more cruel than just letting someone go their way. And saying, you know what? They're my brother and sister in Christ, and I should have a relationship with them, and they're going the wrong way, but you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to have the courage or the fortitude to speak truth and love to them. And there, there's, a, there's a healthiness to understanding that we're works in progress. Yes, there is confidence in God that is beautiful, that he's going to work this and perform this. There's a sure future there. There's also a present reality that at times we're a mess, and at times there's problems, and at times we, we have to work through the hard stuff. Paul continues his thoughts, one big flowing thought, and he says in verse number seven, what I'm calling settled fellowship, settled fellowship, and he says, even as it is meet or as it's proper, as it's logical for me to thank this of you all. So Paul says, I, I know he began a good work in you. I know he's going to perform it, and it's fitting for me to thank that. It makes sense for me to think that God has done something in your life and that he's going to continue to work that out in your life. And here's why it makes sense for me to think that of you. Because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my bonds and defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. What Paul is saying is, I thought about you and I thank God for you. I make my request with joy. I, I know that there's partnership in the gospel. I'm confident that God began something, that he's going to continue to work it in you. And it's proper for me to thank that of you because I know I have you in my, in my heart. That's really my deep innermost thoughts. I have you there and I know that you're with me. You've partaken of my grace and my bonds and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Defense and confirmation is a, is a legal testimony and speech before the officials of the day. Paul's in prison for quote-unquote, propagating a false religion according to the authorities. And Paul knows that he is in chains and bonds and he's about to give a defense and confirmation of the gospel. And he says, it's fitting for me to think that God's working and will continue to work in you because you're with me. Because I know deep down that in my chains and when I have to give a testimony before Nero and defend the gospel, and this may lead to my martyrdom, but I know that you're with me 
I know that you're a partaker of my grace. I know that you as a church have said, Paul, he really he's elaborating on verse 5 in their partnership in the gospel, that you Philippians have said to me, Paul, we're with you to the end, man. Thick and thin, doesn't matter. We're there. We're standing with you. We're by your side. Our mind is made up. We are resolute. We are going to stand in gospel ministry together, and we are going to be, we're, we're going to be with you. And if there was ever, if there was ever a group of people that potentially should have worried about standing with Paul in his bonds and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, it would have been the church at Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony. This is different than a city under Roman rule. They're a colony. This means that it's little Rome. It's Rome away from Rome. It's, I literally made that up. That was not in my notes. It wasn't even in the first service. This, and to make Rome away from Rome, they would populate the colony and they would give the soldiers a pension and they basically give them land and give them place inside of it. So this is a place that is heavily fortified, filled with ex-legionnaires who would give their life for emperor, who would, who would participate in emperor worship. This is a deeply Roman city, if there ever was one. And this is where the church is at. And the church is saying, you know what, Paul? Although you're in bonds in Rome, although you are going to give a defense and confirmation of the gospel, although we stand a great chance of being persecuted for standing with you, doesn't matter, man. We are with you. And Paul says, that causes me to know that it is so fitting and logical for me to think that God's done something in you and God is doing something in you because how could you stand with me otherwise? How could you possibly be a partaker of my grace if God has not done that between us? And they are expressing to Paul that there, there is an irrefutable, unassailable bond between this church and Paul. And what Paul is expressing in these verses is this. He has confidence in what God is doing in the Philippians. The Philippians have confidence in Paul's ministry. And Paul has confidence in what the Philippians are going to do with him. There's a lot of words of affirmation in these, in these couple verses. That Paul is saying, I know God's going to continue to work in you, and I know that you have faith in me, and I have faith in you, that you have faith in me, and we're, we're in this, we're settled. We are certain that we are together for the gospel, that nothing is going to move us away from this, that you have a wholehearted investment in my ministry. And that causes Paul to do something. Verse number eight, it causes him to have strong feelings. Here's what Paul says. Based on all of this, based on you just being with me, this means the world to me. So he tells them, God is my record. Paul, fresh off of some legal terminology and defense and confirmation, says, I call God to the witness stand. I, I promise before God, he is my witness how greatly I long after you all in the bowels or in the affections of Jesus Christ. Paul says, only God can know my heart, so only he can testify of this, but testify of this he can. He knows how I feel about you. And he knows that I greatly long after you. He took the word for desire and added epi to it. He said, I, I greatly desire, I yearn, I, how much I love you, and I love you in the affection of Jesus. And this, this verse is not detached from, from the rest of Philippians. What Paul is saying is, the, set, the continued confidence, the settlement of, of my heart that I have to know that you're with me through anything, that causes me to be so thankful. And that causes me to love you with a fierce love. And that, that gives you a special place in my heart. And there's a lesson to be learned there. That principle works in no matter what relationship you have. 
You go to your boss and tell your boss, boss, I'm in it to win it. I'm with you. I want to be a good employee. I believe in the mission of our company. I believe in your values. I want to do my best. You know what will happen in your boss's mind and heart. They will be more thankful for you. They will have appreciation for you. If you were to express to your spouse, I know you said I do 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, but if you would express to your spouse on a continual basis, babe, I'm, I love you. I, if I had to do all over again, I'd do it exactly the same. Divorce is not an option for me. I'm in this. I, I, I'm, I'm committed to our marriage. If you would express that, you know what that would do for your spouse. It would cause them to have some really strong feelings. You can apply this to anything. Tell your kids that you're glad that, you're, that you are their parent, that you are thankful that God chose you, that you want to do your best. You tell them that, that will do something for your child. I don't care if they're 16. And this has done something to the heart of Paul. You do that, and I'm not doing this in a self-serving way for you to write me a note or text me, but you do that with, with church leadership to say, hey, I believe in the mission. I'm excited about Easter. I, I love what's going on here. You, you express those words of affirmation. That does something for people. And Paul was telling us as much. He's saying, I am certain of what God's doing in you, and it's bearing itself out in real life, and you, you're settled, you're with me, and that means the world to me. That means that, that, means that I, I love you. I greatly long after you. God, ask God. He's my witness. I, he can testify that I long after you with affection that's in Jesus. Paul loves this church, which is, which is important, because the Church is supposed to be a place of love. Believers are supposed to love each other. This is what Jesus tells his disciples, that all men will know you're my disciples by the love that you have one for, toward another. And love is, not, love is not always squishy and syrupy and emotional. It was with Paul and the Philippians, but it's not always. True love goes beyond that. It goes beyond sentiment. It goes beyond feeling. It goes beyond emotion. If you've been married for two seconds, you know that, should know that. But Paul here says, I have, I have real love in Jesus Christ, but even that love is, is emotional to a degree. He says, from the core of my being, with God as my record, he knows I love you. I'll end this morning by, by simply saying this. I will take a cue from Paul and just simply say, church, I love you. I try to end every Sunday by saying those words, but those are important words, and I mean them. I love you, and I know that you love me too, and we love each other, and I love that. Can I tell you, if you're, if you're visiting here, I don't know you, but I love you in, in Christ's love. Can I tell you that there are, there are people around you, beyond, it's not about me, beyond you. If, you, if you're a member or a regular part of Harvest Baptist Church, there are people across the aisle, in front of you, behind you, all over the place that love you. And yeah, sure, sometimes they irritate you or they bug you, I understand but there's a, there's a lot of love in this room for other people, even if you don't really know them. You are, as a believer, you're surrounded by a lot of people that would love to do life and would love to help. That's important. Because the devil's good about whispering in your ear that you're alone. And no one's going to understand. That they're going to think less of you. That I can't talk about this problem that I'm going through. I can't open up. And he loves to isolate people on their own. It's important that you know that there are people all around you that, that you love each other and, and we love each other. Beyond that, most importantly, I would say know that God loves you. All of this was based on, on the affection of Jesus. All of this was based on Christ's love. And it's important if you don't, you don't know the love of God, and, and, I, and I hate to use the, the word love in our day and age because love is such a junk drawer word. 
we love the tires on our car and we love Jesus and we don't mean the same thing when we say those words. So I mean in a, in a grander, more complete, unconditional way that, that God loves you and you need to know that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ died for your sin and my sin because he loved us and wanted to offer us true life, everlasting life. So for us to, to know and have a spirit and, and a, an lubrication of love in the church, that's so important. It's so important. And Paul got this. And this church got this. And they had a special bond between each other because they had partnered together for the gospel. They were certain of that. They were on the same team, pulling in the same direction, and they loved each other deeply. Can I, can I end this morning just by saying if, if you've never experienced the love of God, and what I mean by that is you've never experienced the gift that he's given to you out of love, of his son, that he died for your sins and was buried, and he rose again in victory. If you have, have never put your faith and trust in that, repented of your sin and believed on him, I hope that you will this morning. I hope that you'll enter into the good work that God began. I hope that you'll find what the Philippians found, that you find what Paul found, that you find that I found in my own personal life that there's a Jesus-sized hole in your heart that you cannot fill with other stuff. And try as you may to fill it with work or success or money or sex or drugs or alcohol or relationships or whatever you want to pour in there, it, do it doesn't work. You feel empty still. And it's because it, it's made for, for the love of God and he loved you first. And if you've, if you've never found that, I hope that you will. I hope that you'll learn that what these people had, what Paul had, is something that you can have too. That the Lord wants to begin a good work in you if you'll allow him.